is God really for me? Does he really love me? If he did, then how would you fill in that sentence? Many Christians have wondered, does God really love me, especially in the midst of suffering? And I think many, certainly not all, ask that question skeptically sometimes because they feel that God has not provided for their greatest felt need at that particular moment. I desire so badly a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a spouse. Or I need a girlfriend or boyfriend who is a 10 out of 10, however you might define that. I need children. Or I need my children to be Christians. Or I need a job. Or I need a job with a salary of this much money. I need a life free from death. Or at the very least, a life where death doesn't touch me or my family until at least 75. And so we might not be getting those things, right? We're not experiencing those things. Therefore, God must not love me. He must not be for me. Well, friends, if you are a Christian and you're wondering if God loves you or not, friends, our passage this morning delivers us an answer from heaven. And the answer is a resounding yes. God loves you and is for you. That's the main point of the passage here. As Paul reminds us, minds the suffering Christians there, God loves you, Christian, and is for you. Our passage this morning is found in the book of Romans, and we are in Romans chapter 8. Or so, yeah, Romans chapter 8. I invite you to turn there with me now. It's found on page 944, if you're using one of those black Bibles right there in front of you. 944, Romans chapter 8. And our passage this morning is actually only two verses. Chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. As you're turning there, I'll give you a bit of background about Romans chapter 8. You know, Romans chapter 8, throughout Christian history has been considered by many Christians to be their favorite chapter in all of Scripture. The reason being is that Romans 8 holds out such hope, such security and confidence and encouragement to Christians who live, frankly, in this sometimes, oftentimes, challenging world, in a difficult life, in this life where we, even right now, deal with the realities of living in a sinful world. But this hope here in Romans chapter 8 is not like some sort of pie-in-the-sky hope. You know what that means? That means like, you know, a, a hope that just pretends that everything is okay or a hope that tells us to look within. The hope found in Romans chapter 8 is hope and security, not based in ourselves, but a hope and security that's based in God. Here in our passage today, we cast our eyes on nothing less than the character of God for our hope in salvation. So, friends, if you find yourself in suffering, if you know one day you will suffer, if you find yourself prone to wonder and even doubt whether God loves you, friends, our passage gives us divine encouragement. And the answer from God is, yes, God loves you and is for you. I'll go ahead and read Romans chapter 8. I'll actually read 31 all the way the end of 39, so you get more of the context here. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In our suffering, we know that oftentimes we don't see so clearly. Thank God for clear statements like this. From this passage, we are helped to see clearly when we cannot that God loves us and is for us. We see there that God loves us and is for us from the outset of our passage right there in verse number one. Or sorry, verse 31. It says plain and simple. Look there at verse 31. You always want to stick your face in the Bible. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Interesting, these these questions are asked in such a way where we ought to know the answer already because of what Paul has already said. Well, we already have the facts, and because of the facts, the facts that Paul has already stated in uh, in previous verses here in the book of Romans, Because of these facts, we know the conclusion, right? What is the answer, the conclusion? The answer is to these questions, no one will triumph over us because God is for us. No one will triumph over us because God is for us. And we'll definitely get to what that means. But why are we supposed to know the answer? Why are we supposed to know the answer? Well, friends, it's because of these things. It's because of these things. The Christian's confident hope in God is dependent on these things. He says there, what then shall we say to these things? Well, Paul the Apostle, as he's writing in the middle of the 60s AD, he wrote this letter to the Roman Christians, and he was, without a doubt, trained in the law. So he, in, in many ways, was a lawyer. And he had already, once again, presented the truth, presented the evidence regarding this real hope we have in Jesus Christ. And he says, look, this real hope remains, even if you're suffering. No matter if we are suffering as we battle our own sin, for example, you know that we are supposed to put sin to death, as Romans says. No matter if we are suffering the effects of living in the sinful world, right? Our bodies might be breaking down. That's an effect of living in a sinful world. You could be being, um, you could also be persecuted, let's say. That's suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. But regardless of the suffering that you might go through, he says, look, nevertheless, you have a real hope, the hope of final salvation when we will see Christ face to face. Previously, you guys remember previously in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, all creation longs for that day, that final day, that final salvation. When salvation is brought to bear in the return of Jesus Christ, we are raised from the dead or glorified He says, not only does creation long for the day, he says that we too, Christians, long for that day because we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. 
And even in suffering, God's purposes are always at work. And His will is being carried out to secure you, Christian, for that day. A great summary of the facts that He's already laid out. These things, you can go to Romans chapter 8 and look there. Look there at verses 28 and 29. He says there, a great summary there. And we know that for those who love God, that is those Christians, even if you're suffering, all things work together for good. They turn out for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose, friend? Look there in the next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what some have called the the wonderful golden chain of salvation. And what undergirds this great golden chain of salvation is God's steadfast love for you, Christian. His steadfast love for sinners. It's a love for his people before time, right? So he starts with foreknew. Foreknew. This is God entering into a relationship with his chosen people. As we know that from Deuteronomy chapter 7, he does the same with Israel. And then you also have predestined, right? This is love before time. God predestines in love before the creation of the world. It's a love for his people also in present time. You see that they're the called and justified in the golden chain of salvation. God's call is just God uh, giving people new birth by his sovereign spirit. And then justifying, that's where God declares repentant sinners righteous as they believe in Jesus Christ by faith. And then not only is this love of God in the past, in the present, it's also in the future. It's a love that goes into the future, glorified. These are all things that God does to the Christian. So he's pointing us to see, you know, once again, we're supposed to be cradled in the love of God here throughout time, from beginning of creation to the present and on into the future. And here our verse reminds us that we have become, by God's grace, objects of his steadfast love, all according to his grace. You, Christian, have become an object of the sovereign operation of God's love. Every single link in that golden chain is attached to God's love. For God to foreknow, he enters into a covenant relationship because he loves the people. It's not because the Israel, for example, was any stronger than all the other nations around them, as Deuteronomy 7.7 says. Why did he choose Israel? It's because, Deuteronomy 7 says, he loved them. Ephesians chapter 1, he, the, the church is predestined in love before the foundation of the world. And then we are called. This here is God bringing into effect his own plan in the world whereby he gathers his people because he loves us enough to fulfill what he's promised. God justifies. In Romans chapter 5, we see there that God justifies people or that he declares them righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And in this justification, we come to know the love of God. It says the love of God is poured out in our spirits. Romans chapter 5. And then glorified. We know that on that day when we reach final salvation, it'll be like the bridegroom, Jesus. It's like him finally presenting the bride, that is us, to himself in love, without blemish, spot, or wrinkle. 
Thus, if God's love is for if God's love for us goes back before the world created, His love is with us even now in creation and is with us into eternity. Friends, it means that you, no matter what it is that you might be going through in this particular moment, friends, it means that you are never apart from God's love. You are always, in fact, tethered to God's love from before the creation of the world and on into eternity. Praise God, because sometimes it's really hard to remember that, isn't it? It's hard to see clearly in life circumstances that nothing will separate us from the love of God. That nothing, this is God's pledge to you, Christian, that nothing will stop him from bringing about his purposes in bringing us to himself. So therefore, as verse, eight, uh, verse 828 says, we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So given God's love, given God's omnipotence, given God's determination to gather to himself a people, Paul asks the question, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, well, who can be against us? The obvious answer is no one. No one will ultimately triumph over us because God is for us. Now, when he asks who can be against us, right, the he, he does not mean to imply that no one will ever be against you, Christian. That's not what he means when he says that. Who will be against us? We're not supposed to answer, uh, well, actually, you know what? This person is against me, and this, the governor, government of Rome is against me, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's just a fact that people are going to be against us, as Jesus said. People were against Paul. Listen to what Paul had gone through. In 2 Corinthians 11, he said he had been through many imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. He's getting whipped. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. It's not pie in the sky Christianity where we pretend everything is okay. His experience was one marked by suffering. The Roman Christians themselves knew suffering. By the time, again, in the mid-60s, by the time uh, Paul's writing this letter to the Roman Christians, they had, the Jewish Christians had already been exiled for 10 years almost by the emperor. Some of them maybe were still exiled in terms of the difficulty of living in exile. Others had already returned. Uh, we know that later on in the book of Romans there. But of course, all Christians can simply look to the Christ to see what the world thinks of the Savior and what the world may think of us one day. So when you read, if God is for us, who can be against us? Read, even if the world be against us, it will not finally triumph over us because we are on the Lord's side. Right? He's going to get to, we already read all the things that are against the Christian. As we battle against our own sin, as we live in the effects of this sinful world, and then as we suffer for the faith, as the Lord may call us to. So application here. 
Christian, do you think God is for you? I know you think you know that the Bible says God is for you, but do you know he is for you? It's a really hard question to ask and answer in the midst of suffering. As once again, our suffering in the sinful world is real, and it can, as you know, cloud vision. Some of you guys right now may be even experiencing this. You know, you just, your vision is so clouded, you begin to think in certain ways. And if you don't preach the gospel to yourself, the more you think in those wrong ways, the more and more that becomes your reality. But here, we're called to think rightly according to God's word. But then that can be quite complex, can't it? I myself have wondered, in the midst of suffering, does God really love me? Is he really for me? And at certain times, that question has been, frankly, really hard to answer. But to help us base our lives on what these verses say, let me ask you another question. If you are wondering whether God loves you and is for you, what would it take for God to prove it to you? It's a serious question. What would it take for God to prove to you that he loves you? And I want you to go ahead and write it down right now. And even if you suffered in the past, maybe past, maybe you're not suffering right now. Maybe you suffered in the past and you yourself have already asked the question, uh, you know, does God love me? Is he for me? Just think back to when you asked that question and write down what would it have taken for God to prove to you that he loves you? What do you feel like he should have done? Or should do now to prove his love for you. I hope you wrote that down because it'll be helpful to compare your list with what you feel like God needed to do with what God says he has done and will do. Right? Here we're just going to go to the word of God. We want to shape our thinking and that our emotions be guided with the truth that is found in God's word. Look at the last half of Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he moves so quickly into his answer. Or this is a wonderful example, explanation of how God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if point number one is the main point, God is for us and he loves us. Point number two is how God is for us in the giving of his own son. Point number two, if you're taking notes, God is for us in the giving of of his own son. According to Romans and all of and the entire Bible, the pinnacle of God's love for his people is in the giving of God's very own son, own son. And it really is the pinnacle. Did you hear that in the verse there? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The argument here is from the greater thing to the lesser thing. The greater thing is his own son. The lesser thing are all the things that come with him, of course. You even hear that in, as the emphasis in the verse as stated in the negative. It doesn't say God gave his son, although certainly it says that other places in the Bible, which is a great and wonderful thing to say. But here Paul emphasizes the greater thing by speaking about it in the negative. It says, he who did not spare his own son. And you see that's tied to grace, God's gracious giving it's not sparing his own son, merely it's actually we see God's generosity. We see God's willingness and determination actually to offer up his own son. And this here, friends, is a personal sacrifice when we read his own son. 
And what is communicated is that it is, in fact, the greater sacrifice because it is a greater love, or it is a greater love because it is a greater sacrifice. And we friends all understand this. This is just basic life stuff, right? For example, it isn't really a marvelous pledge, right? It's not a marvelous pledge of love to give seconds. You know what seconds is? like leftovers. If you're going to give your love to somebody, you don't give somebody your seconds. You husbands and wives know this, right? Or those of you who want to get married, right? If you want to get married, who wants to hear on engagement day, I pledge you my love in sickness and in health till death do us part. But just to be clear, this love comes after my love for war robots, the video game. (laughs) This love comes after my love for my career and my personal goals. That's seconds. Who's impressed with seconds? Who's impressed with leftovers? No, here, here there, this is the, the greater love because it's a greater sacrifice. God has given and pledged His very own Son, Himself, His Son. Christians, God is so committed to you, so much so that He did not even spare His own Son for you. To put it positively, once again, God is willing, he is eager, he is determined to hand over his son. To be cut off from the land of living so you would know what it's like to be adopted as sons and have life eternal. And so, of course, if God has given his own son, of course God will not spare every other blessing that comes in his son. He's talking there all the blessings of Romans chapter 5 through 8. This is, this being the giving of his own son, that is the gospel. This is the incontrovertible evidence that God loves you, Christian. Even if you are to face all of these things, as we look at next week, God loves you. If God has intervened by his grace in the giving of his own son, certainly, friends, we can rely on his grace in every other instance and circumstance in all of our lives. He who did not spare his own son... How will he not also graciously give us all things? But some of you guys might be wondering, okay, like, I read that. But why has God not intervened and given us all things? It's a great question. And the answer depends on how actually one defines all things, right? All of us are now expecting, what are these all things, right? If you're a believer, you're repentant of your sins, believed on Jesus Christ, you know that God has given you your, his son. What are the all things? What exactly does he mean when he says that? All things, what things? Okay, so if you're new to Christianity, what I'm about to say might be hard to swallow, maybe, to some of you guys. When Paul says that God will give us all things, he certainly does not mean anything we desire. That's not what he means. He does not mean material stuff one can dream of or a life that we design for ourselves. That is not what he means. Keep in mind, once again, Paul was suffering for the faith. He knew suffering was his path. He was following the ostracized and crucified Jesus. So God nowhere promises to intervene and give us everything we think we need or want. That, friends, is called a prosperity gospel, where people are taught to name it and claim it, where life is all about forging one's own destiny by positive thinking and manifesting our thoughts into existence, and we do not teach that prosperity gospel here. I think it's anti-biblical. 
That kind of teaching actually says that you can become like little gods. It is not what the Bible teaches. When our passage says here, He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The all things there are things that pertain to your salvation. They are the things that God has promised to those who turn to him. They are the things that come with him, that is with Christ. You see that there, the with him, that's really crucial there. With him given in grace, things that pertain to God's purposes for you in this life. That we look more like Christ, that we embrace Christ, and that we see him face to face on that day. God has given us Christ, and he will give us everything we need to make sure we make it to Christ. Part of the all things has to do, once again, with that final salvation. Remember, uh, Romans 8.19 talks about, you don't have to look there, but let me just read these for you. It talks about the revealing of the sons of God. That's final salvation. Romans 8.23 speaks about the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's final glorification and time salvation. Romans 8.17 says that we will be glorified with him. And on that day, we will know the riches in Jesus Christ and all of their infinite an uncontainable value. But the all things are not just future. The all things also include all the things that help us get there, right? If the goal in 829 is that we be conformed to the image of Christ, we know that here on this earth we are to grow in sanctification and grow in holiness. So God will also give us all things that help us move to that ultimate day. So in verse 32, You have the greatest evidence of God's love for you, that is Christ. It's objective proof in space and time in history that God is for you and loves you, that he has intervened on your behalf and done what you could not. The question is, though, friend, do you value God's token of love for you? Do you value God's token of love for you? Is Christ valuable to you right now here in your suffering? Is he valuable or invaluable and friends the best thing you could do is be honest with yourself you do not want to fool yourself in other words if christ right now is invaluable to you in your suffering then friends that helps you understand helps you understand that your heart doesn't prize the giving of jesus christ his token of love for you the pinnacle of god's love for you and then you can start working and asking yourself well why is it that i don't prize that because we ought to and then we can be conformed more to the image of Christ as we work through a lot of those heart issues. Some of us might be wrestling with great bitterness and things like this. Do you judge Christ to be valuable or invaluable? Sadly, in this day and age, in, this, in uh, the church in general, in America, when what is often preached is your best life now, the gift of Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross is about as valuable as yet another pair of socks to a kid at Christmas. Sure, maybe the gift of a son is useful, but definitely not urgently needed. But to Paul, you see here in Romans chapter 8, to Paul, the gift of God's grace in Christ is of infinite value because a Savior is so desperately needed. A Savior is so desperately needed, and so therefore he prizes and values Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer to all of our biggest ultimate problems as Romans has explained so far. So first he says, Paul says there that reconciliation with God is necessary. Reconciliation with God is in fact necessary. Why is that? Because God had created man to be in a relationship with him. 
Man had rebelled against their one good and loving creator. And instead, instead of living underneath his, his authority, they chose to live underneath their own authority. God drew near to man. And man rejected God. Romans says all have sinned against God and fallen short of his glory. All have sinned against God and earned for themselves just condemnation. Because God is just and he is righteous. You know, we understand that. Any king who encounters rebels, what must the king do? Especially if it's treason, which it is treason. There is a cost. There is condemnation. There is punishment. So God, the creator, is against sinful man because we are against him in our unrighteousness, right? That's a problem. If a holy God who created us is against us, we have a problem. We need reconciliation. Second, righteousness is necessary. Righteousness is necessary. Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and the ungodliness of men who suppress God. The problem is specified. No one is good. No, not one. No one is righteous. All have turned away, Romans chapter 3 says. All will be judged by his righteous law and condemned for our rebellion against him. This is eternity in hell for our sin. Therefore, rescue is necessary. Rescue is necessary. Here's the deal, though. It's not that God is against us, and then from outside of God, like from man, all of a sudden, man somehow finds a Savior who placates this angry God who knows nothing of love. That's that's not it here. Here, what's, what's amazing is that this God that we've sinned against actually condescends to save his very own rebels. This is the deal. God sees our inability, in our unrighteousness, in our depravity, in our sin. The fact that we can't save our own problems or stand before God as righteous in our works, he sees our inability and he meets it with his sovereign and saving grace. This is what makes God for us. Because he loves sinners and, quote, and he quotes Second Peter here, does not desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. He graciously intervenes and gives us Christ. If you look over to Romans chapter 1 here, you see the headline of the whole gospel of uh, this uh, letter of the Romans here to the Roman Christians. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God the saving righteousness. Judging righteousness as well as as God judges our sin in Christ. The saving righteousness is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. You see here that Christ is the provision for our greatest needs all by God's intention. Christ is the provision for all of our greatest needs according to His purposes. And where we were once sinners in need of reconciliation, God sends Christ to reconcile sinners to Himself, right? As He takes the judgment that sinners deserved upon Himself, as He bears the wrath that we deserved upon Himself, those who turn to Christ and trust in Him and who believe on Him, it is they who are reconciled to God, where His face is towards us, not in wrath, but towards us in fatherly love. And through His Spirit, we cry out to Him, Father, loving Father. Where we as the unrighteous 
where we so desperately needed the righteousness of God, God sends Christ to be our righteousness. This is at the heart of the gospel where sinners are justified or declared righteous in believing on Jesus Christ by faith and embracing him by faith. In the giving of his own son as a sacrifice of atonement, God covers repentant sinners with the righteousness of Christ. So even though you, Christian, may be battling, may be suffering because you know your own sin and all of that guilt and the shame that comes with it, he nevertheless sees you through the blood of his son. You, it is as if you are wearing the righteous robes of Jesus, even though you are a sinner. And so we are rescued by the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 3. Turn over there. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. He says, therefore, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood or a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He still maintains his justice because the punishment that you, Christian, deserved was laid upon Christ and he shows his love for us and that he justifies us. And so he is the justifier all by his grace and his love and his mercy and his intent to fulfill his steadfast love to you. Now again, if you don't care about honoring your creator, if you do not care about living under Jesus Christ and living for this Jesus Christ, Christ will forever be invaluable to you. Frankly, to some of you right now, you could care less. Because frankly, you have a different love of your life. You're living for something else other than the glory of God and Jesus Christ. And so you will follow whatever it is that gets you pleasure or comfort or control, power, relationships, right? Those are your functional savers. You'll follow anything that's going to get you there. But friends, here according to Romans, living with your creator is what you need. Freedom from condemnation is what you need. Fellowship with God is what you need. According to God Almighty himself. So if you're visiting with us, you see why First Baptist Church is always talking about this gospel? You see why your friend who maybe invited you to church is always talking about this gospel or invites you to church where you could hear about this gospel? In Christ, God gives his very own self in love and grace to secure for his people new life with him. Friends, you will know the love of God if you turn from your sins and believe on him. You might be wondering, right, if, let's say you might be struggling with bitterness, which frankly, even some Christians do, right? We struggle too. We're sinful as well, so we want to go back to the word. Some of us might be wrestling with a bitterness towards God. You wonder, why doesn't God intervene? Well, friends, here we're pointed back to God's greatest intervention, where his very own son takes on flesh to, to do what you could not do, to meet your inability with sovereign grace winning for all and everyone who would ever believe. Eternal salvation, forgiveness of sins, right standing with God, adoption into his family, new life with Jesus Christ, where we can live a truly human way underneath God, our great creator. And God calls you and commands you even to turn from your sin 
And friends, the good news is that you will be saved. And you will come to know the love of God, a love like no other. Look over to Romans chapter 5. Our passage is very much an echo of what he's already said in Romans chapter 5 here. It's confidence there. It's confidence here. It's supposed to be confident and assured of our salvation. But you just hear what the repentant are brought into. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He moves on and talks about suffering. Not only that, though, but we rejoice in our sufferings even, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's what God has on His mind, friend, that you would be brought into this peace, that you would know justification before Him, a holy God, and you would have that hope of eternal life. So Christian, you tell me, if God Almighty is for us, He who has won us salvation, He who preserves us all the way until the end according to His purposes, who can be against us? The answer is that no one can ultimately triumph over God's people because God is on our side. No circumstance, no government, no individual on earth or every, any other spiritual power will separate us from the love of God. So if you are wrestling right now, if you're struggling, wondering, where is God? Is God for me? Does God love me? Let me just quote this Christian who lived in the early centuries. He said, look, if you're worried about the cattle, why worry about the cattle when we have the Lord? Just insert cattle with whatever it is that you might be stressing about. If God is for us in the giving of His Son, of course He will give us all things that come with being in His Son as all things work for our good and towards our glorification. Let me turn now towards a few words towards this local church. Our life as a body as we move towards a conclusion of the service here, the sermon. In relation to this remembering, right? You know, I talked about how oftentimes in suffering, remembering God's pinnacle evidence of God's love for us is hard, this remembering. Well, did you know, friends, that God himself knows that and he's commanded us to remember the gospel in certain ways. Three in particular, God specifically commanded his churches to do. It's number one, the preaching of the word. So every single Sunday, right, we're going to be preaching the gospel, hopefully from every single passage of scripture, whether Old Testament or New Testament, we're going to be holding